Today's guest is Paul Hannum, who's written a book called The Wisdom of Groundhog Day. And what makes him so exceptional is that he was an entrepreneur, super successful, earning a huge amount of money and living in California. He had the dream. And then in 2008, when the crash happened, he lost everything. Since then, he's rebuilt himself and his view of the world, and he's filtered it into his new book, The Wisdom of Groundhog Day. I'd highly recommend it. I think he's a great guy and you'll love the interview, which is all about if you're locked into gridlock in your own life, here's how to get out of it. You have everything you need. You just need to know where to look. Okay, Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I absolutely loved the book. Um, and I think there's a lot of lessons there uh, to take from it. Can you can you just please give me a brief overview of of, of the philosophy behind the book? Well, I think that ideas I really wanted to get across in the book. First of all is that we're all stuck in our own personal Groundhog Days. Sometimes it's obvious, it's our job, a relationship, the routine we get stuck in. But at a deeper level, we're all creatures of habit and we find it very hard to change. And we could be in London today, Manchester tomorrow, New York the next day, but in our inner lives, we're often replaying the same thoughts, feelings, ideas, worries, day after day. We're very much creatures of habit. And it's my belief that the quality of our life is largely determined by the quality of our habits. And if we want to change anything in our life, we have to break free of these habits, which can hold, hold us back and really develop new habits. And I think the next um, philosophy, really, is that you can improve your life day by day. In the film... Every day when he wakes up, he has a chance to create the quality of his day, the experience. He can make it a great day, a boring day, a frustrating day, a fun day, or an amazing day. And I believe we also have that choice. And when we start thinking of waking up as being a chance to create the day that we want and not just go into automatic pilot and not just react to a series of events, we can really take control of our lives in many ways. The third area, and perhaps the most important one for me, is uh, at a personal level and also in terms of the book, is discovering that you and I, all of us, have exactly what we need to be happy now. You know, Groundhog Day is a story of simplification. He doesn't transform his character through attaining more power, more money, more celebrity or status. He can't change his place or his time, so he has to change himself. And he simplifies his life to the essence, to what really counts. And for me, it's all about savoring the simple pleasures of life, enjoying a peace of mind, taking up creative pursuits, being part of a community. And it's taken me a lifetime, in a way, to simplify my own life. And the movie shows us the exact path in which we can do that. So, so did you see the movie and think, hold on a second, you know, sort of have a kind of a you know, an, an epiphany. How did, how, did, how did you correlate this kind of view with this movie? How, how did the two click together? Well, it's, it's 
really been a gradual process, an evolving process, like all great pieces of art. I think my relationship with it has changed as I've uncovered more and more layers. You know, I remember when I first saw the film in 1993 when it came out and thinking it was a brilliant film. But seeing it as much more than a very funny Bill Murray comedy, I, I sensed there was something more there and deeper. And at that time, I had to wait for the, uh, the video to come out to watch it again, really. And then I started seeing more and more, but this correlated with a lot of the work I'd done in social psychology and about habit. And I started using the movie in corporate training that I was doing and asking people, does it feel like you're stuck in Groundhog Day? And people really got the metaphor. I kept on meeting people who wanted to change their lives, even small changes, sometimes big changes, but felt stuck. So it became a very powerful metaphor. But then it got a lot more interesting because about 12 years ago, um, I met Danny Rubin, who's the original screenwriter, actually won a BAFTA award for the screenplay with Howard Ramis. And Danny and I became great friends. And I realized that, you know, Danny's a very highly intelligent man. You know, he taught at Harvard and he has a way of looking at the world, which is unique in my view. And he talked about the ideas behind the movie, the original script. And I realized that this was a comedy that was disguising a much deeper philosophical, spiritual, psychological meaning. And we started talking about it. And my ideas really evolved then. And a few years ago, when I, I went through what can only be called, I guess, a midlife crisis, right? And the film is a story of a man going through a midlife crisis. But I decided that this was very much the story of my life. And in a way, I had to lose the life I thought I wanted to discover the life that I really needed and has made me much happier. And there's something wonderful about the movie that's different to any other story I know because, because he's trapped forever in time um, and he's trapped in the same day. He can't change his circumstances, so all he can do is change himself. And imagine if you could live forever. How would you live if you could test every philosophy, every religion, every strategy for living how would you actually how would you actually live? And Phil comes up with a way of living, Bill Connors, um, the Bill Murray character, but it's all about being living in the present moment, being creative, being compassionate, contributing. And what we found now from studies of positive psychology, the study of happiness, is that the happiest people live the way Phil lives at the end of the movie. And the unhappiest people tend to live the way Phil lives at the beginning of the movie. So I realized that here was a universal, timeless story about how we should live. And, you know, above all, how I should live and how I feel that we should all live. But, I mean, you, you were, in essence, living the dream. I mean, you know, if you look at Facebook you know, updates and, you know, it's all about start your own company and there's all kind of ads. And, you know, you were a serial entrepreneur, weren't you? And, and yes, I was. Living in California, yeah. living the dream. You know, how do you get off that track? Because... You were winning, in everyone else's view. Well, I was winning, um, but what was interesting was, you know, I had what many people would consider the perfect lifestyle. Um, you know, by the time I was 40, I never needed to work again. I was teaching at Oxford. I had a wonderful house in Britain. Then we moved to a fantastic community in Southern California. You know, I was sitting in the jacuzzi, swimming, going to the <laughs> Pacific, and doing what I love doing. But within go a little bit deeper, scratch just a bit below the surface, and I was unhappy. I had no meaning. I had no purpose. I'd gone as far as I could do um, in what I call in my book the, the conditioned self. I'd been conditioned to believe that if I was very successful and had everything that 
I was supposed to have, you know, the big house, um, the family, the, the great work, and I'd be happy. But actually, I wasn't happy. I really wasn't. And it took me losing everything to discover real happiness. And exactly as happens to Bill in the movie. Um, when Bill Murray's character goes into Punk for Tony in the movie, he's on a fast track in his career. He's going to be a bigger, more famous weatherman. You know, he people admire him. He obviously earns a lot of money. And he just sees Punk's Tony as a complete waste of time. He hates it. He despises being there. But by being trapped in time, he's forced to slow down. He's forced to stop, get off the treadmill, and identify what is the real cause of happiness, which has nothing to do with status and success. In fact, I would say it's the opposite. And talking to a lot of people, both in California and in England, who have made it as such, I realize that this is a universal story. But even if you, you know, there are studies that show when you win the lottery, within six months, your level of happiness comes back to exactly where it was before. And sometimes it's lower because you find you've lost friends or your family dynamics have changed. You lose your security in a way. And similarly, when people go through terrible accidents and, and even lose limbs and have near-death experiences, for a period of time, their life, they're far more unhappy, but then their level of happiness comes back to where it was before. The big message is that circumstances don't make us happy. Only we can make ourselves happy. But how do you do that? Because, you know, there's so much information going into our minds every day now. You know, social media, just advertise it's non-stop. And, um, you know, so much received wisdom from the newspapers uh, and so on and so forth. How do you take your brain and clean it and put it back in? Well, it's a great question. I mean, the fact is, the odds are stacked against us in many ways because every day we're getting messages from TV, um, from social media, from the media generally, but we're not complete. You know, we have to buy this product. We have to look this way. We have to drive this car. We have to have all these wonderful holidays that everybody else seems to be having on Facebook to be happy, to be complete. And it's a bit like King Canute trying to stop the tide coming in sometimes. Yeah. But what, what's worked for me and what has clearly worked for many people, in essence, is mindfulness. Mindfulness is not just about meditation, but it's about stopping and being aware of all your thoughts and how you feel. And it's not going with those impulsive reactions. It's not seeing somebody driving a better car than you and thinking, oh, my God, I must have that car. It's not meeting somebody and being jealous of what they have or resentful because you haven't got it. It's not linking your self-esteem to trying to improve your circumstances. I've been on that track for most of my life. And it's what psychologists call a hedonic treadmill. You can, you can never get off it. Uh, it's a hedonic treadmill in that you always have to go faster and faster to maintain that feeling of being happy. What really brought it home to me was, you know, I, my first car was a rusty old Fiat 124, which basically disintegrated over the first winter. <laughs> and, Amazing. yeah, I was 10 times happier driving that than when I used to get new Mercedes and S-Class Mercedes or fancy cars. Why? Why? I could never recapture that feeling of having that first car. Was it the so, car or was it the the lack of kind of uh, status, you know, the, and, and all the baggage that the status brings? Well, what was the... Well, Why? I think there's a number of factors, but what my well, first of all, my parents never had a car, so getting a car for me was was real independent. But it was, I think it's more than that. It's 
and psychologists have studied this, but the first experience, and I'm sure we can all think of many examples of this, the first experience is often the best experience because of the novelty. And that you can carry on getting better and better cars, but you have to work harder and harder to recapture that initial feeling of excitement. And, you know, it's like getting your first paycheck, the first time you go on a plane, the first time you go on holiday with friends, whatever it is, it's very difficult for us to recapture it. And and we're taught this myth that we have to keep on acquiring new possessions and new experiences to be happy. When in in fact, what's clear to me is that happiness is about more about changing our mindset rather than changing what we own or what we have or where we are at any one time. Before it's we difficult get... because we're in a society and an economy and a system yeah. that is sending us all these messages that we're not complete. And we can never be happy if we follow the logic. But, we... you know, but we're, we're um, really told and taught every day. Before we go into mindfulness, which which I found really interesting in the book and, and um, you, your techniques for, for it, how does someone who is, let's say, locked into a mortgage, they've got a job that pays their mortgage, they're worried about sidestepping into something else. I mean, how do you how do you train yourself and, and be brave enough to go, you know what? No, I'm going to detach, put my house at risk. You know, that's a, those are big decisions. Well, how, how do you do it? giving up everything or, you know, going to live in the hills or in a cave. Um, it's partly, it's not so much about not suddenly stopping working, although I would suggest that you always ask your question is, are you doing this because you love what you're doing or are you doing it to earn money so you can buy more stuff to impress people? <laughs> because if that's the track you're going down, and I'm, I was a past master of this track, it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. So the first question to ask is, you know, once you've got enough money, not to be on that, that journey of always trying to get more so you impress people, so you're competitive. But I think there's a much deeper issue here. And that is the, the moment-to-moment quality of your life. And it doesn't matter what job you're doing, you can improve the quality. I can, I can tell you about quite I've worked with thousands of employees, and it's very rare that the CEO or the highly paid city trader is the happiest person. The people I meet who are happiest are the people who bring the most quality attention to whatever they're doing. It could be the simplest task. It could be sweeping the floor. It's even people I work at the company where the happiest employees, the people who worked in a hotel, were cleaning the toilets. Genuinely, they were the happiest people because they had a sense of wanting to make life better for the hotel guests that senior managers didn't have. And it's, it's the attention you bring. You know, the Buddhists say it's all about how you chop wood and carry water. It's not about going to live in the Himalayas or traveling around India or living on an ashram. It's about the quality of attention you bring to everything you do. So, so what does in that mean? Buddhist, what does that mean? Just, sorry. So, no, sorry, you were going to say. No, I was going to say very quickly, it's a great example in the movie. Phil Connors, um, the Bill Murray character, when he comes into town, he despises everything about it. It's his idea of hell. <laughs> You know, the, the Groundhog Day ritual being stuck there in the winter, he calls the people hicks, he hates it. But then he comes to love every aspect of it because he starts to see the beauty of what's happening around him. Rather than focusing on what's wrong with his life, he focuses on all the good things. And that's something we can all practice every day in a traffic jam, like in a queue, in a meeting we find boring. We can experiment with shifting our interpretation of what's happening. 
so, so that's interesting you're saying that you know it could be hell in your surroundings bad things happening but it's up to you to control your happiness in that environment well that's right because again i used to believe that the happiest people all did interesting jobs you know they were in uh, they were musicians or artists or, or footballers or whatever it might be but i've realized that that's just not true. The happiest people often have the most mundane jobs, but they bring an attitude yeah. of contribution. They're more creative about what they do. And above all, they're more mindful. They're more in the present moment. There's some extraordinary research now uh, coming out that shows that irrespective of the tasks you're doing, of the job you're doing, it's your ability to be present and to be absorbed in the flow of what you're doing, which is a far greater predictor and cause of happiness than the actual job itself. But very few people understand that, and we're not trained in these skills. You know, I was at university for quite a few years. I never learned any of this stuff till my 30s or 40s. And I think we should all be, we should all be taught these life skills. And a lot of my work in business is doing this. This is far more important the ability to make money, you know, once you've reached a certain level. So on a practical basis, um, you know, you mentioned mindfulness and... and that uh, Buddhist quote about um, how you cut the wood and carry the water. Mm. How does how does that work? I mean, how do we suddenly... Is it, is it about, let's say, I'm sweeping the floor in the kitchen? Is it about... Um, it's not about effort, is it? It's about approach. No. It's about... Again, I keep on coming back. It's, it's so often we spend our days either thinking about the past and maybe feeling guilty or wishing we could change the past, but more often than not these days, thinking about the future. You know, it's like we put our life on pause until the weekend, until we see our friends, until we go on holiday, until we get that pay rise or we, we meet that exciting new person. Yet life goes on all the time. And Groundhog Day is a story of a man who, who jumps into the flow of the present moment, who stops trying to escape all the time, but finds happiness by being still in one place. For me, it's walking every day. I do basically the same walk every day, which might sound a bit dull, but every but it's I'm completely present. I don't look at my phone, I don't take calls, I don't think about what I'm doing next. I just experience, you know, the the sun on my face or watching the clouds go by or listening to the bird song. And it's there is no happier place than in that present moment. For me, walking works very well. For other people, it might be yoga. For some people, it's cycling or being in the gym. But it's finding an activity that you do for the quality of the activity, not as a means to an end, not as a way to look good or make more money. And we all need to find those hobbies, those interests. Or, but for me, mindfulness is an even deeper way of being because it's something you should bring to everything you do. Because a lot of what we do, we're not self-aware. We're not aware of the effect we're having on other people or on ourselves. And we, we, we just get into this automatic pilot. You know, studies from, from universities show that we, we're replaying habits with 40 to 50% of the time every day. We're in habit mode. We're not thinking about what we're doing. Clearly, when we're driving is a classic example, which we're all aware of. You know, we're not thinking about every movement of the car once you go beyond being a learner. Um, but it's also the way we communicate. It's the way we manage our time. It's the way we think when we're on a train or in a car. We, we, we are creatures of habit. And until we understand how we put those habits together, it's very difficult to get the changes that we want. So it's not about building lists and squeezing activity into every spare moment. It's about sitting still, is it? And just just looking yeah, at I the mean, detail. Sometimes we need lists. You know, 
know, and we need to survive in the modern world. We need to get things done. But it's when we become fixated on having to achieve goals. Mm. Now, when I was living in America, everybody was on a schedule. You know, you might have heard of the expression of a soccer mum who's always racing their children from one activity to another. Yeah. There's very little quality time where people just sit and do nothing. You know, when I was, I, I'm an only child. When I was young, I spent days sometimes doing nothing. And it was, you know, I got bored of it sometimes. But it's part of life, a rich spectrum of life. Whereas now it seems we always have to be doing something. And there's a, you know, Freud called it a free-floating anxiety, that, that generalized anxiety of feeling that we're never enough or we ought to be doing something more, guilt, but why aren't we busy? Why aren't we doing the next thing? And we're missing out on life when we live that way because if we're always rushing around, we're missing the moment-to-moment experience of being alive. So Living how- in our heads all the time and in a desired future. So how do you live in the moment in practical terms? You mentioned breathing in the book, um, mm. which I found really interesting. Um, and I tried myself on a very uh, perilous flight. And it was, ama- <laughs> it was absolutely amazing. I actually forgot where I was. Um, so there's the breathing exercises, aren't there? I mean, how do they work? Yes. Well, definitely. The reason breathing is at the heart of all mindfulness and meditation is because it takes your attention away from your thinking. Basically, um, we are addicted to our thoughts. We're in a society, particularly in the West, where we are never stop thinking. Um, sometimes it's looking, you know, we get bored and we're always distracting ourselves. So we have to be looking at a smartphone, iPad, our laptop, TV, whatever it is. Or if we can't do that, we have to be thinking incessantly. And when you focus on your breathing, you take your attention away from your mind to your body. And we have lost a connection to our body. Athletes have it, people who practice yoga have it, but we're very almost uncomfortable in our bodies because we spend so much time living in our head. So when you focus on your breathing, or when you do, like I do, mindful walking, you switch from what I call thinking and doing mode to just being mode, to just being. And that, for me, is the key to happiness, is spending as much of your time in that mode as possible. Yeah, of course, we need to think, we need to um, be doing tasks, but it's when we become almost addicted to them and just compulsively doing them day after day. And I call this the Groundhog Day condition because we, we wake up and we go straight into this routine. We shower the same way, we eat breakfast the same way, we, we have the same habits go in our commute, the way we work, and what we do when we get home often. And we're just replaying the same day again and again so many times. So how would you do the breathing then? Well, the breathing is very much to, to me, what what works is is when I'm walking, I just literally put all my attention into my breathing. And I I breathe in for five seconds, I hold to a count of five, and I breathe out to a count of five. It's as simple as that. There are many different approaches. um, And... You know, in transcendental meditation, you're, you're, you're focusing on repeating a, a mantra, a word again and again in your head. But the, the simplest way always for me is to focus on your breathing because you're always breathing and it's something that's always happening. And when you tap into your breathing and become aware of it, it takes your attention away from everything else. It's like a time out during the day. It's a refuge you can go to, a sanctuary you can go to any time. And if you've got a very um, difficult meeting coming up, if you're feeling high levels of stress, when you start doing that simple exercise of breathing in for five, 
holding for five, and then breathing out for five, and just repeat that again and again, you will notice that you'll get calmer, and you'll slow down, and you'll change your state, and you'll realize you don't have to be in that, that crazy, constant anxiety of thinking and worrying about what's happening next all the time, because we can go through our day like that, and the days just disappear. So in terms of your happiness now, compared to where you were, I mean, what, what was the business you were doing before that was so successful? Well, it was um, in computer recruitment, but also in training and consulting. So um, there were two elements to it, um, recruitment, but also coaching and consulting. And, and you know, it was, it was extremely successful. Um, you know, at one point we reached um, annual sales of just over 30 million a year. And wow. uh but you were miserable. The owner of it, so it was a very successful <laughs> utterly, utterly miserable being rich. <laughs> well, it was fun for a while, but the point was it never lasted. And I kept on thinking, well, aren't I supposed to be happier? I look at my paycheck, I look at our accounts, I look at the car I was driving, the house, you know, ridiculous. You know, at one point, I lived in the house with 15 bedrooms, you know. Wow. And um, it was insane. And yet, it didn't correlate to the happiness. I thought, there's something wrong here. What am I doing wrong? And it, it's almost taken me a lifetime to figure out that happiness, you know, once you get to, I mean, all research shows you, and I know from absolute practical knowledge, is that when you get to round about the median salary in any country, which in the UK I think is round about twenty-five to 30,000, once you get to that level, going suddenly to 300,000 or 3 million or 300 million a year doesn't make you happier. You get a little bit more pleasure, yes, but not Every test shows that it doesn't make you happier over a long period of time. So then, you know, how... it gives you some other advantages, but not happiness. But then, how do you be mindful on that walk you do, for example, or you know, your walk to the to, to the train station to go to work? Eh? What is it you're looking at in your walks? Other people should look in their walks. You know, when they're dilly dallying or they have to do things at work, how do they focus in? Well, I yeah, I mean, I, I give the example in the book, and I did. I was in London today, and it, and it happened a beautiful, crisp, sunny day. Yes, it was cold, but a beautiful day, and I was walking across um, London Bridge, and everybody's on the phone. Everyone mm, you look at is yeah. either talking or looking at the phone or they're listening to headphones, and nobody's looking around them. Nobody's looking up at the sky. Nobody's looking at the river. Nobody's looking around them. And they're part of this extraordinary rich experience of just being alive, yet they're completely absorbed by diverting themselves from being what they think is bored. So the first thing to do is don't look at your phone when you're walking. <laughs> That's the first step. Yeah. You know, put it in your pocket, have it there for emergencies by all means. And then the next thing, I mean, what works for me is to say is I look at clouds all the time. Clouds. Look around me at the nature. You know, there's a society on the internet that is the Cloud Appreciation Society, I think it's called. Really? And I thought this sounds interesting. <laughs> but just spend 10 minutes looking at clouds. It's fascinating. It does change your state. It makes you feel happier. And um, or another technique that works very well, say, to focus on your breathing, some people simply count their steps. Oh, but for me, it's nature. It's my relationship to nature, which is the most important. And, I, and when I'm walking, I always find tremendous comfort and happiness in just connecting to the nature all around me. And it can be in a city. It can be a cloud. It can be looking at a river. Sometimes it's looking at a building or a, a blade of grass. But I live in beautiful countryside in Sussex, so I'm very fortunate that I can experience that. But I don't need to go to the Himalayas. I don't need to go on one of these exotic holidays. It's there for us everywhere. 
And that's, again, the message of Groundhog Day. He finds happiness in the last place he would ever imagine finding it. But what if miserable people are trying to make you miserable? You know, um, you know, day to day, there's the bad things may happen to you or whatever. How do you, in that moment, yourself, for example, you know how you've got the tricks. How would you pull yourself out of a situation like that? Well, that, that, that's a great question. And that's tough because, you know, one level, it takes a lot of effort to manage our own mood, manage our own state. Mm. But when we've got other people who are trying to sort of pass on their misery to you, and that, you know... That's true of almost every organization I've ever worked in. It's, uh, it's very hard. But what I find really helps is I just imagine, I, I say to myself, just let it pass. Just let whatever they're saying pass through me. I just don't hold on to it. When people used to criticize me or say things that I didn't agree with, I'd hold on to it. I'd want to fight it. I'd want to disagree. I'd want to defend myself. I naturally went into that defense what Freud calls a defense mechanism. And um, now I've re- I just let it all pass. I just, it's more of a Buddhist approach of everything's impermanent and just let it flow through me. And it really works. Um, you just don't take itself. I don't take my own thoughts very seriously and I don't take what other people are bringing very seriously, unless I have to. Clearly, if they're ill or they're crying out for help, then I will really listen. But the other great piece of advice I was given many years ago is never take it personally and realize that when people are in a bad mood, if they're negative with you, if they're angry with you, it's very often nothing to do with you. It's to do with something that's happened to them. Maybe they've had some terrible news. Maybe they've had a tragedy in their life. We never know. But we always assume it's something we've done wrong or they don't like us or we try and fix it, but just to let it go. And that is a brilliant approach, which we all could benefit from, you know, reading about Buddhism. Um, because I think Buddhism, for me, is the ultimate self-help philosophy. And it was created two and a half thousand years ago. And so, it's just letting it go. So if someone's new to Buddhism and, um, you know, they, they, they listen to you talk and they think, wow, this sounds fantastic. You know, is there some kind of entry-level book into Buddhism that they should read? Um something that, that, that gives them a good, good view and a good approach that they can like, apply to their own life. And what would you recommend? Well, there are many good books on Buddhism. Dalai Lama's book's very good. But the best book about this, and it's not specifically about Buddhism, though it might as well be called Buddhism, is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. It's probably um, the most influential book in my life. Um, really? It's called The Power of Now. I mean, many people will have heard about it. It's one of the biggest selling books in the last 20 years. And he really shows you how to constantly be present and just to let go of all those negative thoughts and just see yourself. It's a dance. You're going through life and it's about not holding on to negative anxieties or thoughts or feelings and just being present all the time. And it's about observing yourself and, and really separating yourself from your thoughts and knowing that you are not your thoughts. Now, in that very simple sentence is tremendous wisdom. You are not your thoughts. Because we all carry around these self-images everywhere. And one of the most important things I've had to learn to do, and it's been transformative in my life, is just let stop thinking about myself all the time, which as an only child has been quite hard, I can tell you. (laughs) But when you do that, there's this wonderful sense of relief that that takes over you. And the power of now really introduces you into very simple techniques 
and are there any other maybe two other books you might recommend um that have kind of made you into into the person you are today oh yeah, very much i mean books have been hugely influential um in my life i've always read a, a great amount and Another book that links into a lot of the themes I've been talking about is called Authentic Happiness by Martin Seligman. When I was teaching at university and in most of my lectures, I referred to something called positive psychology, which is the, the scientific study of happiness. When I first studied psychology over 30, well, 35 years ago, you studied negative states. You studied disorders like depression or schizophrenia. You studied problems. And it's only really in the last 15 years or so that psychologists have turned their attention to the opposite of depression. What is the opposite of, of feeling bad or being depressed? Well, it's, to some extent, it's happiness, but it's, it's more than traditional views of happiness. And there's, there's some incredible books about well-being and happiness. And Martin Seligman's book, Authentic Happiness, is a great introductory text, which introduces people to this idea that we can become happier. Some of us are born, we, well, we're all born with a fixed point of happiness. Some are happier than others. If you think of your siblings, your friends, people you've known your whole life, your children, some are born happier than others. But through practice, we can improve our levels of happiness. And the other big idea of this is that happiness leads to success, not the other way around. That is, if you want to be more successful, become happier. If you want to be happier, you don't have to become more successful in the classic meaning of that word. And that's quite a radical idea. That's quite a paradigm shift in our society. And this book really introduces a lot of these ideas. And the third book, and personally one that means a great deal, and it's a book I suspect very few people listening will have heard of even, is by a very good friend of mine called Tom Hartman. And Tom Hartman is um, one of the leading like progressive or even left wings in America, left wing means very different, but very progressive radio show host. And he wrote a book uh, nearly 20 years ago called The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And it was all about the fact the carbon economy, the last hours of ancient sunlight produced the carbon that we're living off. And it introduced me really to the environmental damage within this planet. I don't really talk about this or write, write about this very much in my book, but it underlies everything because... I feel that we've become so disconnected from each other and we've also become disconnected from, you know, the planet we're living on. And when I read this book, it opened up to me the incredible responsibility we have to future generations. And this is nothing new. We all know the damage of, of climate change at the moment. But this is an incredibly powerful emotional book. It doesn't just talk about the environment, but it talks about the whole it's like the capitalist system, how big corporations damage they're doing. It's quite a radical book, but it makes you think about everything completely differently. And I love books like that. I love books that really shape the way I see the world. So given all the books you've read and everything you've done, if you live to 400, say, um, and your great, 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 great grandchild asked you, what's the one thing I should do with my life? What would you tell them? And how would you do that? By focusing, being in the present moment, not always thinking about what you want, but being far happier with what you have. To recognize that you could be the richest, most successful, most famous person in the history of the planet, but it won't even come close to the good fortune of being alive, of being human, 
of having a brain, of being conscious, of being born on planet Earth, which might be the only life in the whole of the universe, as far as we know. And we're in a society, we're in a civilization that's completely lost touch with celebrating the gift of life. And whatever time you're born, there's nothing for me more important than that. And that's the work I do every day, is to remember that. And I can't give stronger advice to, to anyone now or in the future. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Uh, love the book. Uh, everyone listening, definitely buy The Wisdom of Groundhog Day. It is fantastic and transformative and will change your life. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. This show has been produced by Joseph Wilson for Social Hand Grenade Productions. Check out his comedy show, The Social Hand Grenade Podcast, also available on iTunes, SoundCloud and Podbean. Yeah.